The vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body, supplying the much-needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Our Father's Heart podcast. This is one of those uh, special ones that uh, I've just had some thoughts and meditations on my heart that um, I've been kind of sharing incrementally. I was uh, able to minister uh, just recently, probably at the end of January, to our fellowship and it was on the importance of fathers and families. And it's something that the Lord has been just developing in my heart since I even admitted it to, uh, to the saints. Uh, that's just been thoughts that have been, you know, just going on and on in, 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 my, in my heart with the Lord as I've, as I've questioned things and tried to understand things that I see going on in this world since Labor Day. September 1st of last year, and I was able to finally uh, minister that word um, to to the saints on the importance of fathers and families. And um, our fellowship has started this particular year uh, several programs. Um, you know, one of them is men's fellowship meeting, and another is... Um, meeting in different saints homes for, you know, what are traditionally called home groups or cell groups. And the thoughts that have been going on in my heart just have to do with men taking their rightful place, taking that mantle of authority that has been delegated exclusively to them and being led of Christ to basically take responsibility, the responsibility dedicated, delegated to them directly by the Lord. And I've been thinking one of the most important things for young men of God to find out as early as possible is their responsibility in this life that they have been given. You know, there's a song out there that says when it's all been said and it's all been done and the race is run. That's the lyrics of that song. But then, you know, my thought is we're all going to be held accountable for what we've done with the life our God has graciously and mercifully given to us. And we live in an age and a culture where, and I'm talking about American culture, where rights are exalted. I have the right to speak what I want. I have the right to bear arms. I have the right to our to my religious exercise. I have the right to play all kinds of music. I have the right to eat whatever I want and so on and so forth. And we, we just have rights. You know, from our Bill of Rights, from our Constitution. I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with having rights or freedoms or liberties. There's synonymous terms that are used. 
However, the Word of God speaks not necessarily contrary to that, but it teaches that our quote-unquote responsibilities in this life supersede our quote-unquote rights to do as we please or as we personally see fit. And that's kind of the idea that I want to share in this podcast. I don't don't know how long it's going to be. I I just have some thoughts that I feel I need to share. And, um, you know, recently we had a uh, men's uh, fellowship, our second one of the year. And that was kind of our topic. You know, our topic was, what does a man of God look like in today's world? And we all, you know, shared uh, uh, some attributes and and, and, uh, characteristics that we should be seeing in men of God. And all of them had really great points. And, and I told, you know, my brothers, honestly, I've got like nine pages on this. I, I've just, this has just been on my mind and heart, you know, for quite a while. And I shared some of it on in January. Um, and and I, I, I didn't want to overtake, you know, the men's fellowship, just make it a teaching you know, of, of, of just the things that I've shared. So I shared a little bit, a little bit, just kind of just add on to what I shared in January. Um, and, and it was a blessing for all of us. I, I really do feel like um, we were all hearing Jesus um, through, you know, our struggles, our, our weaknesses, our being honest and transparent with each other on different things. And it was, it was really healthy for us to hear that, you know, some of us might look at another brother and get an impression that, wow, you know, they, they've got it all together and, and, and they don't seem to have any issues and have any problems. And, you know, I remember feeling that way about my previous pastor uh, of 15, 16 years. Um, but as you walk with someone, you get to know uh, more intimately the things that are really going on. And you realize that outward facade is not as perfect as, as it, it impresses you to be as it seems to be. And so like, like I was saying, that was really healthy for us to, um, you know, share with one another. And I, I, anytime I, I share, I, I don't want to just share my experiences and my thoughts because although there's validity to it, there's not, um, eternal truth found in them. Um, I believe the eternal truth is found in the word of God. Uh, I mean, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word, the Lord says shall remain. It's eternal. And so when I, when I, when I was thinking about this idea of rights and responsibilities, I began to think about when Paul was talking to the saints And he was talking about foods, speaking about foods and our rights. And our our brother, Paul, the apostle of the Lord said the following in first Corinthians six, 12 and 13. He said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me. He says it again, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I'm not subject to to any of 
of these things. And then he says further, because the context of he was talking, he was talking about saints who had issues with eating certain things and not eating certain things. And, and so he says foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And you can read the rest of the concepts of 1 Corinthians 6, but that was his wording back then. But I felt like it's very synonymous to the wording that we use today about our rights. We have the right to do this or to do that. But you know what? Just being able to say that I have the right to say this doesn't mean saying it is the most beneficial thing. Um, some people like to be loud and boisterous and, and arrogant and prideful and boastful, and they have the right, you know, under the umbrella of our constitution to say whatever they like and to have whatever opinion they like about something that's, you know, going on or, and, it doesn't mean that just because you have the right to say or do something, it doesn't trump responsibility. And so let, let me try to clarify that and, and elaborate a little bit more. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, however, in verse 7 through 13, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So again, the context is talking about what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And then it brings in the idea of our conscience Sometimes our conscience, being immature, being ignorant of certain things, doesn't allow us to freely eat meat, per se, eat pork, eat, eat certain things. And for some other people whose, whose conscience is mature, is strong in the faith, they're free to eat the meat. But here's... The, the, the ace in, in, the, in, in the card deck or the trump. Um, in verse nine, he says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. So you see right there in that sentence, even though it doesn't use the words, it's like the Lord was speaking to me. The responsibilities that I have delegated to you, my son, trumps whatever rights you think you have in this life. Because your responsibility to me, meaning the Lord, and the responsibility that you have to your fellow brother, your fellow sister, trumps whatever rights you think you have. So he says furthermore in verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? 
But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see, Paul doesn't, he doesn't acquiesce to his brother's weak conscience and then agree with his brother's weak conscience or, or ignorance of, of certain things and say, well, my brother is right. He doesn't say he's right in not eating the meat. He's just saying that I am not going to allow my freedom and my liberty to be able to eat meat to cause my brother to stumble. And if necessary, I will, I will not eat the meat for my brother's sake. So there, my responsibility to the Lord, my responsibility to my brethren trumps my personal rights. And that to me is just a sobering thought. It's not all always about me. It's not all always about you. It's about you taking responsibility that has been given to you by the Lord and also take responsibility for not being coming a stumbling block to your brother or your sister. He continues on in, the, in this uh, letter to the Corinthians and he, he, he talks about it in chapter six. He talks about it in chapter eight and he comes back to it again in chapter 10. And he says again, all things are lawful for me. Again, he's not admitting that what they believe that is not allowing them to do this or that is right. He, he emphatically repeats himself. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And so Paul then says in the very next verse, what is the real point of the matter? Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. The responsibility that I have to my brother supersedes my rights. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, but don't ask questions for conscience sake. But then he says, and he quotes the scriptures, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. So I read that and, and I share with you and I say, you know, Paul readily admitted that he had the freedom and the right to do lots of different things. But it was not always beneficial if he did. He demonstrated that his responsibility to his creator and his brethren's well-being always outweighed his right to engage in something. And so when I think about that, the Lord brought me back to Genesis, back to the beginning. Because my, my heart has been focused on man. And I don't mean mankind in general. I'm talking about men. Because if we go back to Genesis 2, 15 and 17, 15 through 17, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayst freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. You see, in the beginning, when the Lord fashioned man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life, he placed man in the garden with responsibility. He didn't just place him there and say, hey, enjoy it. It's all yours. Do whatever you want. On the contrary, he not only gave man responsibility when he said to dress it and to keep it, Adam also named all the animals. And then God also commanded Adam to eat of every tree except one. And he was told the consequences of eating from that one tree would be his death. So here, all the way back in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, I see a pattern being established when God relates with man, he reveals himself and he has demands and requirements of man in order to establish a covenant with man. You see, a covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties and both are required to keep the covenant with each other. Both are mandated by the covenant to do so. But <laughs> the interesting thing is that with God, there's no mandating God of anything. He's not a man that he should lie, but rather he's inherently bound by his word to perform it. Otherwise he would violate the very essence of his nature and his character. So holding God, you know, to, to requirements, well, it's, it's futile. And the reason why it's futile is because God will not break his word, period, point blank, end of story, full stop. It's not in his nature to break his own word. So when God comes to man, it's kind of no requirement that is necessary of him because he binds himself by his own word to perform whatever he has said he would perform. Man, however, must meet his own side of the covenant. He must carry out his responsibilities. So herein lies, lies the issue for men. At least the way that I see it, the, the way the, what the Lord has been showing me resoundingly just over the last several months. If we go a little bit further into the garden and, and we go into Genesis chapter three, which is where we have a very detailed analysis or a detailed account of what exactly happened after Adam and Eve had been created. And so you, you see, you know, the first, just to give you context, Genesis chapter three is the first couple verses. The serpent comes to the woman and, and we know everything that happened with that story, but I want to read verse six and seven because I believe this is what, what, the root problem is with men. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
Now, again, this is after she had this exchange with the, with the serpent, which I'm, I'm not trying to focus on that now because I'm trying to, trying to limit this to be as focused as possible. But the next part is, is the, the most important part, at least in my eyes. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And that was shown to me many, many years ago, and it, it still reverberates and resounds in my spirit emphatically because it's saying, you know, when you read it from a distance, you might not realize it until you read that particular verse. But when you realize that the serpent was talking with Eve, he, he, he didn't want to address the man. He went around, he went underneath and he got at the delegated authority of man through the woman. He exchanged with the woman. He deceived and beguiled the woman. But the fact is he was there the whole time and he said nothing. He allowed everything to happen. And notice, notice in particular that when the woman ate of the fruit, nothing seemed to happen. He then took the fruit. He then ate. And the very next verse, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings and they tried to hide their sin and their shame. That's, that, that's a powerful revelation there. And we know the rest uh, of what transpired after God came in, into the garden in the cool of the evening and he called for Adam. Adam, where are you? He didn't come to the serpent. He didn't come to the woman. He came to Adam because Adam was first and foremost directly accountable to what transpired. And I'm going to try to go into this next section in detail as to why he was the one accountable and responsible for the fall. Yes, Eve was, was beguiled. Yes, she was deceived. But it was his responsibility. And if anyone is at fault, it's... It, it rests squarely upon the man, not just simply because he ate of the fruit. Absolutely, because that was completely in direct obedience. But if you look at the details before that, he was present while all of this deception was happening and he said nothing. So the problem that I see right from the root, right from the beginning, in the beginning, is that Adam, man, abdicated his responsibility. So let me, let, let me go a little bit further into that because it was directly given to him. 
I don't want to just say it without showing you where and why I, I see this as the case. So if we go back just one chapter, so, you know, we have Genesis one tells us about all the seven days of creation. Genesis two zooms in the focus to what happened on day six when the animals and Adam were created. That's, that's basically the gist of two. And then three tells you about the fall or yeah. Chapter three tells you about the fall. So if we go back to just chapter two, I'm, I'm just going to read it because I want you to see it. It's in Genesis chapter two, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 25. Now, and forgive me if, if, if this is taking long or it's verbose, but I think it's really, really important that you don't just hear people for what, you know, they have to say or what they have to believe. I want to give you the word. And I'm hoping that God is using me to maybe help you see and understand the word in a much clearer manner than you may have before. Because a lot of times we, number one, well, we might not even read the word. (laughs) So some of you out there listening just may not read the word. And maybe I'm just going to be a conduit to help you get into the word. Number two, some people read the word and they just overlook things. And I am number one guilty of that. And that's why I keep reading the word over and over and over again, because I overlook stuff all the time. And, and the Lord is, is, is teaching us and leading us in at the level that we're at. He can't give us, you know, quantum physics when we're only capable of third and fourth grade (laughs) math you know, so he's going to take us incrementally in steps, which is why we need to go back and we need to read and reread again. And we start having a better, deeper understanding. So I implore you and, and I encourage you to, to always get into the word again and again and again, and keep giving God the opportunity to reveal more and more and more to you. And I'll kind of, uh, talk about that at the end, but, uh, as something that's important for men to do and, and women. But, but again, my focus today is just on men. So let me read Genesis 2, 15 through 25. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. I read that earlier. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. So I think I read that as well. So again, he, he created man of the dust of the ground using the dew and, and, and the, 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 the dirt and the clay. And he breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. And he put him in the garden and then he gave him responsibility immediately. Please note that. To dress it and to keep it. Then he gave him a commandment of what he was allowed to do. So yeah, when he, God had a covenant with Adam, he had certain requirements of him. And so it says in 18, and the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. So he purposely brought all of the all of creation, that all the animals that he was creating, he brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them. So he was wanting Adam to give them names. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. God didn't name all the animals. He had Adam do it. 
So there, there's more responsibility there given to Adam. And Adam was fulfilling God's will and purpose. And so Adam gave the names to all the cattle, to all the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There's a lot of different things that could be said just in that couple verses, but let me try to just highlight and pinpoint on some things. God created family with our interest in mind. When, he, when the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone, he already had in his mind and heart that I am going to place the lonely Adam into family. You might not know that, but there's a scripture that says he puts the lonely into family. And this word Ezer is one who helps, a succor. That's what she would be to him. And then it says, well, let me go back just one more chapter because I just bring another um, point to this whole idea. Because I am focused on the man, but I want you to understand, uh, even though I'm focused on man, men, um, what happened here applied to the both of them. So let me show you why. If you go back one more chapter to Genesis one twenty eight, it says, and God blessed them, meaning man, mankind. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. He's speaking in general that that, was man's responsibility, that they be fruitful, that they multiply, that they replenish the earth, that they subdue it, that they have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That's responsibility. And it says, and God said unto them, meaning male and female. But here's the deal. Here's the point. When we see that in generally speaking, this is what he did on the seven days of creation. This was that, that generally speaking part under the seven days of creation. This is what he did in Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two. We zoom in. We, 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 we focus on specifically what happened with man and we realize, Oh man, men were created first. So Adam, being a man, a male, was created first. And he was the one told directly by God what his responsibility was. And he was given commands and requirements. Eve was not around. The woman 
was not around. The woman, even, even when she was created, she wasn't even named Eve. We just say Eve because we know that when she, um, later on, he then called her Eve. But initially, she was woman because she came from man. So what we see here is that God spoke directly to the man gave him responsibility and that responsibility fell also on the woman, even though she wasn't there. She wasn't around initially when he had given him all of these responsibilities. So God's primary purpose for mankind was for them to replicate over all the earth, subduing it, taking dominion of it, taking authority over it, and ruling over it all. It wasn't happiness. It wasn't pleasure. His primary purpose for man was to fulfill God's will. So family was created by God's direct initiative to fulfill his purpose. Now, I want you to understand, as I'm reading this, as I'm analyzing this, I'm realizing that before family came, there came responsibility. Man ruled. And when I say man, I mean the male ruled under God's direction, his direct supervision. He ruled by the commandments that were given to him. You see, in verse 15, man was given a job. He was given personal responsibility. He was given a job before the woman came around. He was given responsibility. That's really what it was. And then in verse 16, we see, well, man must be given the word directly from God. He receives his instructions directly from God. And then the choice of freely obeying him who is his head is also given to him. So man needed to rule by choice, by willing choice. That's why there was a commandment. Hey, you can eat of everything you want, but you can't eat from this tree because the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So when we kind of take a look at that microscopically and then kind of, you know, step back and, and think, how does that apply? A man must bring the benefits of his responsibility, what we call work. He must bring the benefits of the word that God has given him. So the benefits of his work and of God's word, he must bring it home to his family. Again, the woman was not around when he was given responsibility to dress it and to keep it and all of these things. So man being the head of his home must be able to provide not only physically and materially and, and, and stereotypically, normally men feel that sense of responsibility normally, <laughs> You know, going in a day and age where that's going by the wayside, but, but normally 20th century men actually did. And, and times before that 21st century men, the first 20 years, it's just been, <laughs> uh, it's a lot of uh, perversion going on, especially in our American culture. But 
not only do we provide physically and material, but also spiritually. The Garden of Eden is a type or, or it signifies a man's house or his home. And Adam was given everything prepared at home. But his responsibility was to have dominion over all the earth. So everything had been prepared at home, but he needed to go out and, and, and fulfill God's uh, delegated responsibility to him. So think about when, when there's a family. Don't we prepare our children throughout their, their years that they're living with us to eventually leave the home and start their own family? So I would submit to you that the relationship between the father and the mother is more important than the relationship between the parent and the child. The father and the mother represent the head of the home. If they are not aligned right, the offsprings, their, their descendants, they're going to be off. So when I look at verse 18 and I think back on it, I say, well, man should not be alone. That's not good. I, I recognize, well, the male and the female were created at different times. All the animals were created at the same time. And so when I read that and said, I see, well, gosh, that's the order of creation. That signifies that there's a hierarchy of responsibility. Adam, the man, is God's responsibility. Eve, or the woman, is Adam's responsibility. Now for that, I, I, I can go to 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 3. And, and we could talk about how that hierarchy uh, was seen in the eyes of Paul the Apostle. When he was, <laughs> it's an interesting uh, chapter. Uh, I've actually uh, shared that in, a, in teaching on Paul's letters. Um, but a lot of people, it's interesting, a lot of people will read that, you know, one chapter and they'll come up with, uh, you know, um, that the most important part is that the hair, the hair for the woman has to be long. It can't be uncut, you know, and, and, and my beloved brothers and sisters believe that, that, it, it, that it's the glory, glory and, and all of these things. And I, I, you know, I, I, I see it differently because I have other brethren that are just as precious and just, and they're in the same faith. Uh, <laughs> they're in the same faith. They'll read the same chapter and they'll start talking about, Oh, I've got to have a veil. I've got to have a veil over my head. And, and, and they're both looking at the same trap. They're reading the same thing. And I read that and I'm, I, I, I don't get that. I get something else. I get man, or excuse me, how, how God is trying to teach mankind about the hierarchy, the divine hierarchy that should be in every family. So he says in verse three, I want you to know that the head of every man, male, is Christ. The head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So this is all about divine hierarchy, order, headship, coverings in the home, in the family. And then it says in verse 22 and 24 of Genesis, 
the rib of man was fashioned into a woman. Well, this signifies that when a man finds God's woman for him, that the rib comes back to the man and it, and it completes him again. And all, in, all this is in types and shadows. So when a man and a woman come into the covenant, they become one flesh. So from its very inception, family, marriage was created in God. It was created by God. It was created for God and the establishment of his purposes and the fulfillment of his word in the earth. Notice when the woman came out of the man, that's when she was called his wife. That was the actual word used. I don't know if you recognize that or notice that. But when she, when that rib was taken out and, and the woman was brought into the man, that's when it says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto what? His wife. And they shall be one flesh. And then it says, and they were both naked, meeting Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, the first man and the woman in the earth. And it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife. So God established the first family. It didn't start with, you know, children per se. It, it, it started with a man and a woman, which were, you know, in, in a sense, in a type, a children of God. Since every godly man has a calling, every man must know their calling. And when they seek out for a virtuous woman and they find that woman, they need to find a woman whose heart complements that calling, the calling that the man has in order to help fulfill that calling. So according to verse 23, it says she takes his name. She shall be called Wu-Man because she was taken out of man. So she takes his name. So this signifies that she's about submission to her husband. And that she is ready to help take on and fulfill God's purpose and calling on his life. Because she recognizes it's her calling now. Which is why in, in you know, in our, in our, in many of our cultures, when a man and woman get married, the woman will take the name of her husband's, you know, her husband's last name. And it's indicative of something when a man and a woman get married and the woman refuses to take her husband's name. For right now, I'll just leave it at that. And you can kind of think about that for yourself. But she, Eve, took on uh, the name of her husband, Wool Man. So some thoughts I, I'd like to share with you for you to think about in verse 24, because there's so much there, but the, let, the, let me just give you four points about verse 24. The cord between the man 
and his parents must be severed. He must be completely independent of them. And at the same time, dependent on God for this new covenant of marriage to be sustained solely by their creator. You see, over time, as, as we're in our families and as we're raised by our father and a mother, hopefully, I know that it doesn't happen all the time, but when we're raised in our family, just being in family conditions a sense of dependence and emotional attachment. I mean, obviously it's there, it's developed over time, you know, in their own family. But at some point when, when we get married, we can't hold on to that. They become secondary. It's not that you just, you know, cut them off completely and neglect them entirely. I'm not talking about that. But they do become secondary because in order for you to establish a new uh, covenant of marriage between a one man and one woman, you can't be tied to other people. You have to be tied to the Lord. Just as Adam and Eve in the beginning were only tied to the Lord. You know, a great example of this is Abraham. When he was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, he needed to leave his father, he needed to leave his mother, he needed to leave his country in order to fulfill God's plan and purpose for him. And so he also had to, in a sense, sever that relationship with his earthly parents so that he can establish a covenant of dependency on God alone. Another thing that I notice in verse 24 is that there's a clinging that must occur between the man and his woman, the husband and the wife. And it's the same message given that Jesus will never leave or forsake his bride. The same message that a godly man should send to his new bride. The bride must be fully persuaded of that message that she will also risk leaving her covering, meaning her father, her family, to her new husband's covering of peace and security. And let me tell you something, if you're looking to have a relationship with a woman, father-in-laws are looking for that as well. They want to know that if my daughter leaves the safety and the security and the protection and the sustenance and all that I provide as a father I want to feel safe and secure in knowing that she is going to go to a man who is dependent on God, who loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and is ready and recognizes his calling and his responsibility in the kingdom of God, and that my daughter will also share in that calling and responsibility. 
So remember, the bride is coming into perfection. And so will your wife, which is not to say that you're perfect as the man. But that's important to understand. A third point I want to bring about is conforming and submitting to one another. You can find that in Ephesians 5.21. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then the very next verse, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But it started with, submit yourself one to another. So when it says they shall be one flesh, actually it speaks of a process. It's the oneness of mind, will, heart, purpose. That, that, that does not come at once. Anybody who has ever been married will tell you that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we loved each other. And, ooh, you know, our hearts were a flutter for each other. But let me tell you something. Walking out this oneness of, of in mind and will and purpose. Yeah, that, that didn't happen overnight. Listen, husband and wives, <laughs> they're different. And they're different because of their gender. And that, that, that's a big thing. And their experiences in life are different. That, that, that also speaks uh, uh, of things that we need to overcome, things that we need to work out, like iron sharpening iron. Um, and so oneness, it's a process for us because we're not perfect either. Even if we're the man, we're not perfect. And so you got two imperfect people coming together to live a life of oneness with each other in covenant and the only way that two imperfect people can become one together is solely, solely by the spirit of the Lord at work in both of them, because he is the agent of perfection. I can't even remember if I released that teaching in my podcast already, but I have taught on that. So, and number four, our last point about verse 24 is communication. And, and I see that when it says, when you have intimacy with another person and you are not ashamed, we both, the man and the woman need to be number one in each other's life. Number one, and, and, and I mean that's separate from God. You know, God is actually first, but I'm talking about number one with each other because Man, hey, men, we need to be setting the example. We should be out serving her. Yeah, we should be out serving her. Finding freedom in, in our relationship and intimacy from one through three, the, 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 fir the first three points that I just gave regarding this. And so we see that as well prophetically. Uh, when we read Ephesians 5, 22 through 28, it says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So Christ, in, revel, in, in a prophetic revelation of Scripture, he typifies through his love for the church what he wants to see demonstrated in the earth between the husband and his wife. Men of God, we need to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We need to be ready to sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. And that's how we need to love our own wives, just as we love our own bodies. So women should be covered by their husband and the husband needs to be ready to do so to instruct when necessary a lot of people use this following scripture and they get all hung up with you know paul is such a chauvinist pig and he doesn't let women talk in the church and blah 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 and it's all in first corinthians chapter 14 and they they don't want to recognize that he was actually just establishing order in the church order in, in, in the, in, in the dynamics that were going on as ministry was being done. Um, but it says something in particular here that speaks to me about what I'm sharing here with you today. It's not about women keeping silence in the church. Um, but it says they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. And then they get all caught up over it is a shame to women to speak in the church. And they don't realize that in that particular uh, community in the Corinthians, it seems like, you know, the women were talking out and disrupting the proceedings that were going on. And so to maintain order in the service, in the ministry of the kingdom, it's preferable that if the women have any questions, instead of jumping up and, and you know, snapping and talking and, and questioning and blah, blah, go ask your husband at home because that's his responsibility. That's his responsibility. So this should make husbands well aware that the Lord is expecting them to study and learn the scriptures so that he can, as Adam did, like a conduit, share the word of God, the scriptures to his wife. You see, when we go back to the garden, you think about, hmm, so Adam was given the responsibility to dress it and to keep it. He was the one that was actually commanded uh, to eat of anything that he, he wanted except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was the one that was told that if he did it, he would surely die. Eve wasn't around. The woman was not around. So how did the woman know? Why did the serpent go to the woman instead of the man? Because it seems like the man had given the commandments of God that he received to the woman. He told her what God had said. 
And so Adam already knew what God had said. So the serpent wasn't going to go to Adam, but the woman had had heard about what God said through Adam. And so maybe he thought that's why I need to go through her. So think about that because men have to take the responsibility toward our family. And we will walk exemplary knowing that those we teach, meaning our wife, our children, and others, they're watching us. And if we're being watched as men, as as leaders, we have a responsibility to correctly model to the world the family that God created and ordained for his purposes. Men, we're the first demonstrable example of our Heavenly Father. Not only to our family, but to the world at large. I, I think upon that and I think of the scripture you know, that says, uh, Sir, we would see Jesus. I just remember that, that scripture. And, and, and men, we, we are to be a demonstrable example of Jesus in the earth, which is not to say women are not, you know, doing that. You know, we all are, if we're all uh, born again in the kingdom of God, we all have that responsibility, but especially and specifically the men. Now, for some reason, well, for many reasons, um, our, our world is suffering. Our, our nation is suffering. And, as men, we, we, we've just, we've kind of lost our way. We, we've just lost our way. We've lost our intimacy with our heavenly father. We've lost our closeness because we've, we've wavered. We've, we've gone astray. It's gotten to the point where we kind of treat our heavenly father, like our sugar daddy, like he's supposed to say yes to our every request. I mean, to be honest with you, he says no quite often. I mean, the, the, the God that that's described by other quote unquote Christian denominations and organizations, sometimes I hear it and it's like, gosh, that is not the God that I know. He says no quite often. And, and there's a reason why he knows what's best for us. He knows better than we think we know for ourselves. And one of the things we've gotten lost in as men is we have a problem saying no. Sometimes it's saying no to our wives. Sometimes it's saying no to our children. Sometimes it's just saying no to others. No to certain toys. No to certain attire. No to certain sports. No to certain TV shows. No to certain music. No to staying up past a certain time. No to having dessert before dinner. (laughs) Uh, No to certain activities that interfere with more important family activities. You know, I think about when, when our kids became adolescents. You know, some of us have problems with saying no to cell phones. 
No, you shouldn't have a cell phone. You're too young. No to social media. No to certain friends. No to attending certain schools. No to sleepovers. No to unholy relationships with the opposite sex. No to unholy relationships with those of the same sex. No to hormone treatments to transition, quote, to the opposite sex. No to removing perfectly healthy parts of our bodies to acquiesce to foolish and vain desires of our children's flesh in their ignorance. Gosh, I could go on and on and on. And I'm sure y'all can come up with your own. But those are some that I see in this day and I'm like, what are the men doing? Why? What are they allowing? It's like men have lost their spine, their backbone, our masculinity. And we've acquiesced our authority over to others. And as I said, when I look at Genesis, that to me is the root. We've acquiesced our authority, given and delegated divinely by God to us. And we've given it over to others. Men have acquiesced to lies because of our phileo love for the brethren. Phileo meaning our, our just common brotherly love. We're afraid to say no. We're afraid to tell the truth and love. Yet, yet, if you read the scriptures, it says in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, that we should no longer be children. Men are no longer to be children. Children are tossed to and fro. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every trickery of men, in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But it says in 15, our responsibility is but speak the truth in love. That we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Examples of that in this day and age. Men not speaking the truth in love are accepting the homosexual lifestyle in their families. I say that because I know of families that profess to be Christian and they think that it's the Christian thing to accept the homosexual choice of their children in their own homes. And recently, more, more overtly over the last 10, 15 years is this transgender craze. Christian, quote unquote, Christian families not telling the truth in love to their children that are confused They call it gender dysphoria. Professing Christians that believe that the Christian thing to do 
is to acquiesce to their children's thoughts and desires that they have been unduly manipulated and influenced by social media, by doctors, by school counselors, by psychologists and therapists. And they call it gender affirming. Uh, no, they are gender rejecting how they have been created by their creator. And men are just seemingly just fearful to stand up and say the truth in love. And there's a particular individual that's caught in a lot of flack just recently. His name is Matt Walsh because he spoke in a very, he spoke, basically he spoke the truth in love regarding a man who was passing himself off as a woman. Dylan Mulvaney. It's one of the most popular people on TikTok. And he's even met the, the president and done an interview with the president. And the world flaunts him like, well, like they do. The world is completely contrary to the principles, the values of the kingdom of God. But men are fearful to say anything against that person because, oh, you're being mean. Oh, you have no empathy. Oh, you have no sympathy. No, we're just telling the truth in love. You're not making a healthy decision and choice for yourself. But they don't want to hear that. You know, early, early, well, a little over 20 years ago, Al Gore lost the presidential, um, the presidency. Um, it was highly contested about ballots, chads in Florida. And after he lost the presidency, he began to be a international marketing salesman for climate global. Actually at that time it was global warming <laughs> and he was going all about trying to convince everybody that global warming is going to melt all the polar ice caps and Florida is going to be underwater and the California coast is going to be underwater and all of these calamities are going to happen because of global warming. Well, you know what? Whatever he predicted never happened. And over the time period, global warming has become climate change. And have you noticed that the most notable salesman of climate change is not Al Gore? It's a young lady named Greta Thunberg. You may have heard of her. How dare you? How dare you? But anytime anybody has said anything trying to tell the truth regarding global warming and, and directing it toward her, they're all saying that, oh, you're so mean. How could you say that to a young girl, you know, who's, who was in her teens at the time? And they use these people 
so that you would be fearful to tell the truth in love because you're being mean and and you're 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 not letting them you know be who who they're meant to be men have lost their their boldness their their courageousness you know for me over the years as a school teacher they wanted me to refer to a young man as a she using preferred pronouns that are contrary to objective reality and the rules of our own established language to what to acquiesce to the thoughts of a young person that doesn't, that is confused. So we're going to affirm the confusion rather than tell them the truth in love. No, not here. So I, I guess I want to close out with a couple thoughts, you know, men, we, we, we need to take full responsibility for ourselves, our families, including our wives and our children. And the only way that we can adequately do that is to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. We need to consecrate ourselves to his word, his will, his works, and his ways. And we need to fear him more than we fear any man. Because our responsibility in our homes is to be the leader. With the condition that we are under the covering and direct leadership of Jesus Christ himself. That is the condition. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians 11.3. Men, we need to seek out a deeper and more intimate walk with our Heavenly Father. Because many of us have strayed away. We now fear man more than we fear God. And we are unwilling to speak the truth in love and say no. Not up in this house. No. Men, we need to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God's word. We need to learn to hear his voice, obey, and we need to learn to apply God's word to every area of our life. We have gone astray. And men, we need to stand. We need to not compromise. We need to not bend the knee to the spirit of this age. If we're going to leave a spiritual legacy, it starts with our own family. It extends to the world and the remnant the Lord desires to rescue through our lives. I'm going to close out with a story that I heard on a particular podcast, and I hope that it makes a point. Maybe the icing on the cake of uh, the cake of what I've just shared with you about the responsibilities, trumping rights, and how men need to take their responsibility. 
This is a testimony of a particular library in Idaho. You can probably look it up, but what I'm about to read you is a letter of a person who attended the drag queen story hour that was happening at a local library. It's a former representative of, of um, Idaho. His name is Ron Nate. He has a PhD in economics, I think. And he wrote this letter that I thought I would share with you because this is the type of stand that men need to make in this crooked, perverse generation we live in now. He said the following, and then I'll close this out. This past weekend, I attended my very first Drag Queen Story Hour, DQSH, and I left inspired. But it wasn't the show that inspired me. Rather than polluting the minds and souls of innocent children, the drag queens and other demonic performers read their stories and performed their acts before a solemn, resolute, and prayerful crowd of adult Christian conservatives. Now, to be sure, these good Christians came to the event not to be entertained, but to stand in the gap between those who want to drag all kids into their own demonic world and the innocent children dragged to such a wicked event by their sick moms. Here's how it went down. After the announcement of a DQSH to be held at the Marshall Public Library in Pocatello, Idaho, on Saturday in February, several pastors of different churches and denominations organized a coalition of willing grown-ups to come early to occupy all the seats and stand between the perverts on the stage and their targets, innocent children. Now, when my wife and I arrived 30 minutes before showtime, all but four seats were occupied and soon every seat and much of the standing room was taken entirely by this Christian army. A few minutes later, two woke moms squeezed into the back of the room with four kids in tow. Show was about to begin when one of the moms not so quietly complained to her children how sad it was for them not to be in the front and how difficult it was for them to see all the way in the back. She entirely missed the point. Two minutes into the show, as planned, one of the pastors explained to the library director how the maximum occupancy of the room was clearly violated by the crowd size. The director, a well-trained bureaucrat, was forced by his own rules to clear the room of all those not seated, including the moms and kids. The moms and woke supporters were forced to leave the event. There were 10 to 15 other children who never made it into the room in the first place. Kids would not be partaking in any of the debauchery. The performers, void of any child targets or their parents in the room, nonetheless persisted in their show. <laughs> they were not happy. But I guess they stupidly and arrogantly thought they could teach the Christian crowd a thing or two about their sickness. Their two book readings and one ukulele sing-along were met with silent, defiant defenders 
of family values and of God's commandments. The audience didn't applaud, did not sing along, did not participate. Instead, they quietly read their Bibles, bowed in prayer, and thereby peacefully protected children. It was inspiring. It was spiritual. Despite the demons reading and relating immoral and vile alternatives to God's law, the warmth and comfort of God's love filled the room and overpowered the demons. I was deeply moved. Our cause, God's cause, requires action and dedication. As you mentioned last week on your show, do not call out the demons unless you are ready and committed to take the battle to them with your swords. Showing up to these battlegrounds will give us a small wins at first, but it will also embolden the demons to build their forces, sharpen their tactics, and increase their fervor. We need to overpower them. As Elisha said to his servant when it looked like they were facing an insurmountable army in 2 Kings, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Elisha asked the Lord to open his servant's eyes so that he too could see the multitudes of horses, chariots, and warriors standing at the ready to win the day. We are in a culture war. It is indeed crazy versus normal. Better put, it is demonic versus God-fearing. We should be comforted by Elisha's account. Indeed, more be with us than be with them. However, we must engage. We must act. And I pray we do just that. Saturday's win at the DQSH gives me hope. I heard that and I was spiritually stunned. Because we can get so dejected at the degeneracy that surrounds us. And yet a group of people banding together from Christian denominations and organizations banded together to fight the good fight and hopefully protect children. And what I'm saying and what I believe is that in order for us to even regain some semblance of a foothold in our nation, we have to get our houses in order. Men, we've got to take responsibility for what's going on in our home. We can't be the absentee father that is also part of the home, but distant. We have to be involved with our wives and our children in their lives. We have to lead by example. Lead in the ministry of the word. Hope this was a blessing to you all. Sorry if I got long-winded, but this was just on my heart that I felt needed to be shared with you all in the hopes that you would Maybe recommit yourself to the things that are most important. 
the things above, the things that are in the spirit, the things that are unseen, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Amen. Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart, and express the Father's heart to you. If you appreciate listening to this podcast and we're blessed, pass it along to someone else by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, if you desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash jbenjesus or cash app dollar sign jbenjesus or Venmo jbenjesus. That's J. B-E-N-J-E-S-U-S. God bless.